Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Making Waves with Wet podcast. In every episode, you'll get a glimpse into the latest news, insights, and the real people who are making waves in the wastewater industry. Plus, you'll hear the stories and some of the behind-the-scenes secrets about how wet comes together. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Today we bring you something different. It is a session right from Waste Expo. And I think it will be of interest to you because it's about PFAS and the man-made chemical that is everywhere. It talks about the complexities of it, solutions that are out there, and things we can do now and in the future to combat it. So give a listen. Hope you enjoy it. This is part two of the super session on understanding PFAS and its complexities. My name is Steve Menoff. I'm with Civil and Environmental Engineers. I'll be your moderator for this session. Our speakers in this session, uh, first speaker is Dr. Brian Staley. Uh, Brian currently serves as president and CEO of the Environmental Research and Education Foundation, which you heard about quite a bit in the first session because of all the valuable work they're doing regarding this topic. Uh, EREF is one of the largest sources of research funding and scholarships related to solid waste management. Uh, Brian joined EREF in 2008, where he started as Vice President of Environmental Programs. He has over 25 years of experience in the environmental engineering field, 16 of those related directly to solid waste. He is recognized nationally as a technical expert in sustainable waste management issues and holds degrees from North Carolina State and University of Tennessee. Our second speaker is Kevin Torrens. Kevin has over 38 years of experience in industrial wastewater, leachate treatment, O&M, and groundwater treatment projects. He has a master's degree from Vanderbilt University in environmental and water resources engineering and is located in Brown and Caldwell's office in Ramsey, New Jersey. Kevin has had significant experience treating complex wastewaters, such as those from landfill leachate, pharmaceuticals, and chemical industry. Kevin's industrial wastewater background is aligned with his role as the national market sector leader for leachate management at Brown and Caldwell. His interests related to leachate management include regulatory, technical, alternatives evaluations, project delivery, system optimization, and research and development. He has conducted research and numerous projects related to PFAS in leachate. Thanks, everybody, for uh, sticking around. Um, we had a great conversation, I think, in the first session for those of you that were here. Um, I'm going to probably get down in the weeds quite a bit on a few things, and I'm hoping I don't hear too many heads hit the table. But um, you know, hopefully it'll answer some additional questions or provide some additional clarity to some of the things we heard earlier today. Um, I quite honestly prefer, Steve may get mad at me, but um, I, I like things to be interactive. So if I'm saying something that's not clear or you disagree with, you know, raise your hand, jump up and yell, whatever. Let's have a conversation about it. But, Run to the microphone. <laughs> but happy to do this interactively rather than just me up here talking for probably too long about stuff that everybody doesn't really care about. Um, so anyway, the, the starting point here, the overall treatment goal interrupting uh, the cycling of, of PFAS. You know, so you see the little landfill there that's circled, and that becomes our point of focus for this conversation, obviously. And when I think about what we're really, what are the regulations trying to do? 
you know, so PFAS, well, we've heard this, it's, it's everywhere, it's in us, it's in all the products, it's ubiquitous. Um, how, do, how do we break that out so we don't continually impact the environment? And this is my own perspective, um, but landfills are a great place for PFAS to be. It's a secure place, uh, it's well controlled and well managed. Uh, the main outlet for PFAS in landfills is leachate. That's why we're going to be talking about how, how do we manage PFAS and leachate. But let's think about it as, you know, I'm probably jumping ahead here, but this is an opportunity, in my opinion, for the waste industry uh, to be able to say, we're managing PFAS in a responsible way. We're keeping it out of the environment. Uh, we have mechanisms to control it. Um, it now, there's obviously some strings attached to all this. It's not free and all this kind of thing, but I think it's a good opportunity for the industry. Okay, so challenges with dealing with PFAS and leachate. You know, we've heard this quite a bit. Um, you know, it's a very difficult matrix. Leachate, you know, I like to say it's got everything in the world in it. Anything that goes in a landfill is going to be in leachate. So. You've got inorganics, you've got organic material, you've got metals, you've got salts, you've got surfactants, you've got PFAS. Um, so very, very difficult matrix. It's very different than where most of the work has been done thus far in dealing with PFAS. Everybody thinks drinking water and groundwater and so forth. That's really easy, you know, the reality when I think about it compared to leachate because you don't have all these other co-contaminants that can adversely impact whatever technology you're looking at. So I, I think it's really important to recognize that one size does not fit all. You know, we hear people talking about, oh, we can just use XYZ technology because it worked on drinking water. Not gonna work on, on, on leachate. So we have to have that awareness. Um, what we found, again, I'm probably jumping ahead here, but there are, only a few technologies, we, you heard about that in the first session, Stephanie's talked a little bit about that, that are, are really proven and commercially available. And they're separation technologies. All we're doing is removing the PFAS from the liquid phase, and then we have to do something with it. So I'll talk a little bit more about that, but we're not destroying it. There's no destruction technologies right now uh, that are suitable for leaching. So just a little bit of background. Again, we heard some of this. Stephanie covered a lot of this before. Uh, what, what are the discharge options for, for leachate just to calibrate ourselves? Uh, direct discharge is, is one option, but by far, in a way, the biggest is uh, discharge to POTWs. Um, you know, thinking back to the conversation this morning, uh, or earlier this afternoon, there's so many POTWs right now that are just saying, you know, we're, when we look around for disposal outlets, where do we take leachate, trying to help our, our clients and such, uh, the first question we get is, is there PFAS in it and how much? And you tell them and then they say, well, no thank you. We probably don't want that. Um, and we've had a, at least one instance, there's probably more, where there's a POTW that is in a state that has no PFAS program at all, and they're self-regulating. They're just saying, you have to control PFAS no more than this amount uh, coming into our, to our plant. 
with no regulatory basis at all. So just unilaterally, they're picking a, a load, basically, of how much PFAS they're willing to accept. And we asked them what that was based on, and they said, well, we just don't want any more. We don't think it's a good idea. So that's how far things have gone in terms of how this is being, quote, unquote, regulated. I, I wouldn't even call that being a regulation, right? That's just a perspective. That's a, just whatever you want to do. So, you know, we have four options, basically, direct discharge, go to POTWs, and there's subcategories there. Do you pretreat, not pretreat? Do you go to the sewer? Do you haul it? All that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different uh, scenarios there. Um, you go zero discharge, evaporate it, um, or deep well. And we're actually seeing quite a bit of interest right now from the industry on deep wells. Uh, they're only available in certain locations because of geology and permitting laws and permitting rules and so forth. But in those jurisdictions, people are really looking at it and saying, hey, deep well's not a bad idea. You know, we spend eight or $10 million once on a, on a deep well. We may have to redevelop it once in a while. So every five years, that's another million bucks. But when you compare that to treatment and so forth and the long-term liability, maybe it looks we can argue about the long-term liability, but it's looking like a very nice option, both for raw leachate, you know, the full leachate flow, or for concentrates, let's say, from a separation process that's being used to manage the, uh, uh, the PFAS. So thinking about what, what kind of PFAS are we worried about, and this was a study, I think, Stephanie, you, you quoted this one, it was, uh, done by the USGS, and they compared a couple of systems. And what I've highlighted here, the green highlights are the top five compounds in, in leachate, and the yellow highlights are the top five in the POTWs that receive that leachate. So you see a little bit of correlation, but not it's not like you would think. It's not every single compound. And it goes back to what, what Stephanie was saying about what a low contribution at the end of the day um, leachate is to POTW PFAS mass. Most of it's coming in from residential sources or other commercial entities, uncontrollable sources. And you look at PFOA, PFOS, and they're, they're high in the uh, POTW influent, but they're not high, relatively speaking, in, in the leachate. So you can't attribute those high levels in the POTWs to the leachate, um, despite a lot of what we hear out there. Um, so it, it, you know, I think it's interesting that there's this correlation, non-correlation, and we see also that um, there's very you know okay this is one scenario, and if you look at the top there. Uh, the contribution in these studies, you know, this is a little biased, I've got to admit that. The leachate was only less than a percent in, in all cases of the total flow to the POTW. So dilution is the solution, right? You know, so uh, it's all about size. How much, so the moral of the story here is find a big POTW if you're going to take leachate. Don't go to a little one, find a really big one because size matters. It just makes it a lot better in terms of how much they're willing to accept. The other thing to think about, though, is what the way it's being regulated is 
you know, they're looking at POTWs and the agencies that they report to the states are basically saying, find, find the sources and regulate them. And the sources they start with are those that are permitted typically. They can regulate the permittees, right, because they already have permits. Um, what they're not doing is looking at residential and so forth because it's uncontrollable. They can't tell people not to do whatever they're going to do. To me, it's a bit of an analogy to um, what, what happened with nutrients uh, and control of nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus. So the, the, the program by EPA was regulate the point sources for nitrogen and phosphorus into the environment. And then the non-point sources, agriculture, will ask them to not use as much, you know, as a voluntary type approach. That's essentially, you know, what's happening with PFAS. You know, they're regulating those who they can regulate, which, you know, kind of makes sense. But it puts, puts the industry in a tough place. So, kind of broken down into two levels, non-destructive technologies there on the top and then destruction technologies. Uh, the non-destructive technologies that are suitable for leachate, those are the ones that are available to us today. Destruction technologies, they're not ready for, for prime time. Um, they're, they're still in the bench scale stage. Some are maybe in the pilot scale stage, uh, but they're not proven. They're not commercially available. You can't go out and buy one in, in most cases. And if you did, you, you really don't have a track record to say it's going to work. You might be getting serial number 001, which is usually a bad idea So, because uh, all the bugs aren't out. So what do we have for uh, destructive, non-destructive uh, technologies? Again, there's separation. Uh, you have uh, adsorptive methods, uh, GAC, um, ion exchange resins, AER, so that'd be anion exchange resins, and other adsorbents like uh, fluorosorb, like we heard about in one of the other sessions this morning. Uh, so they're just sucking out the PFAS into the media. Uh, then we have the separation technologies, which would be RO, uh, reverse osmosis, and foam fractionation. You know, we heard Steve t mention his process. There's others out there as well. Uh, foam fractionation, you know, two or three years ago, it wasn't even considered a viable technology. It hadn't been developed enough yet to show that it really worked. So there, like I think we heard earlier today, there's been a lot of advancements. That's, that's great news. Um, hopefully there'll be more. And then lastly, there's a zero liquid discharge. Um, just evaporate it. I think, uh, well, I'll, I'm jumping ahead again. So anyway, those are sort of the options, the tools we have in the toolbox today to work with. And it's a matter of fitting the tool to the problem and, and making sure we're using the best technology for the particular situation at hand. It's another way of looking at uh, these technologies from the development uh, side and where they are on the continuum of, of development. And we have the, uh, the uh, destruction technologies there on the far left. Uh, they're really uh, at, at bench or very small scale at this point and still getting the kinks worked out to make sure they work. Uh, you have um, uh, electro uh, oxidation, ECL, electrochemical oxidation, uh, novel adsorbents, some that are being developed that are different than what we talked about. Um, they're swellable, organically modified, 
plastic, basically, uh, is one of them that's under, under development. HLT, that should really be HTL, which is um, hydrothermal liquid, liquefaction. liquefaction. Uh, it's sort of like supercritical water oxidation, but not pushed to that extent. It's at lower temperatures and pressures. And synalysis. So those are all, again, really very much in the development stage. Further along, supercritical water oxidation, which is a very high pressure, high temperature uh, technology. It's really only suitable for very low volumes and it uh, will provide full mineralization. In other words, it'll destroy the PFAS molecules. It doesn't just transform them into something different, but you're actually stripping off the fluorine and so forth, and you end up with CO2, water, and um, fluorine, basically fluoride. Um, and plasma is in development now. Again, it's it's an sort of an oxidation technology using uh, radicals that are generated, and you find that um, the work we've done shows uh, shows pretty good results. And I think Brian's probably going to talk about some of this stuff a little bit more, so I shouldn't spend too much time on it. Foam frac, uh, I think it's actually at the point right now that I would move it over to the right as a market-ready proven technology. Um, it's advanced enough that you can go out and get one of these units and there's enough data to say, yeah, it does work. So uh, I think that's very positive. And then you have the, the technologies I mentioned earlier. I'm not going to go through all this, but uh, the takeaways from this, the pros and cons, um, you know, the, the technologies there that are mentioned, the adsorption technologies, they're proven, they're known, you know, they've been around. You can go out and get it. That's the good good thing. The bad thing is you have to deal with the uh, spent media at the end of the day. What do you do with that? Do you put it back in the landfill and hope it doesn't desorb? Do you incinerate it? In, in the case of GAC, you could take it back to the manufacturer. They uh, reactivate it at very high temperature. If you talk to Calgon, they'll say they get 98, 99 plus percent destruction through their reactivation process. So um, that, that's, that's a, a good option. One of the challenges with these media and I, that I worry about, particularly with leachate, and raw leachate in, in particular, is the competitive absorption and other, other materials that are going to use up space on whether it's GAC or resin. And they're just not going to last very long. It's going to get very, very expensive. Uh, we did a study on pretreated, biologically pretreated leachate after an MBR with GAC, and we did a accelerated column test, and we blew through, they, they couldn't even measure the breakthrough, it happened so quickly, it happened in like less than 12 hours, uh, the breakthrough. So we asked them what the estimate for the carbon usage was gonna be, and they said, we can't even tell you what it would be, you'd need to build a carbon plant next door to supply all the carbon. So uh, I'm repeating a little bit, but you know, the best available technologies we have at our hands right now, media adsorption, you know, we talked about GAC um, and the resins and, and other adsorbents, membrane separation, RO, and then foam frac. So I think these are the tools we really have to work with. And like I mentioned, which is the best tool for, for the uh, situation we have to deal with. Similar slide uh, just showing you know, what do we have to deal with with these technologies? Well, we may have a liquid stream of concentrate, a regenerate, if you use regenerable resins, which is pretty rare. 
Um, or you may have a solid residual. You may have the, the resin or uh, the GAC. Uh, if you have RO, you've got the RO concentrate, uh, which could be, depending on the type of system you use, it could be anywhere from 15%, let's say, I think is a reasonable number, um, of your forward flow as, reje as a reject to, could be as high as 30%. So that's a lot of liquid to have to manage. And what do you do with it? Foam frac is nice because you get a very high removal of uh, the PFAS. You know, we've seen, I'll show you some data, but very high removals. It's, it's really effective, but it doesn't take anything else out. So if you have to comply with COD, ammonia limits, other things like that, it's not going to get you there. It'll get the PFAS, but it's not going to get the other stuff. So is that the best solution? Do you have to combine it with something else to get these other contaminants? You know, maybe RO is a better solution because it's going to take everything out. And you might be able to treat 80% of your flow instead of 100% and still meet your limits. So there, there's just tons of things to weigh in trying to figure out what the best approach is. So, you know, you got the treatment approach, treatment train, and we have uh, separation technologies. We talked about that, that that's the starting point. You can have spent media or liquid concentrate. Where are we today? What do we do with these residuals? So we could landfill it, we could incinerate it, slash regenerate it, or perhaps deep well it if it's a liquid. So not a, not a lot of options. Um, where do we hope to be in the future? Uh, we could use paralysis, uh, eco, um, electrochemical oxidation, plasma, um, supercritical water, HTL, uh, synalysis. These are all things we're hoping for, but we don't have available to us. So performance of RO. Um, these are real data. And you can see that we're basically getting down to non-detect levels treating raw leachate. Um, across the board for, for the, these key uh, PFAS compounds. And you also see we get very good removal of things like COD, BOD, ammonia. So it's very TDS included. So it's a very robust technology uh, in terms of the level of treatment provided. Uh, it works great on PFAS, but again, you're, you're, you're left with this concentrate to, to get rid of. I think there was a question earlier in the earlier session about the impacts on landfills from the concentrate, right? Um, I don't know that there's any data. I've not seen any data. I, I, I don't think we'll see any data for, the, for a while on PFAS cycling because of that. Because nobody was looking at PFAS five years ago, so we don't know what the starting point was. So we don't know how, how that balance really looked. What I can say is, um, you know, there's some sites where there's been no impact from the concentrate on, on the leachate even after 10 years of operation, let's say. I, there's other places where within a year or two they've had negative impacts. Um, increased TDS or increased metals or adverse impacts on the, um, on the bugs in the landfill, the methane formers. You know, so we, we, we have seen both, both scenarios, and I think a lot of it has to do with how you apply the liquids. Uh, you know, if you're just going to dump them, you're probably going to end up with a bad result. You know, if it gets distributed and worked in with the trash and so forth, you get some sequestration and all that kind of good stuff. 
um, it might be workable. So it's a mixed mixed bag. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer for the, for that scenario. So foam frack. This is an example. There's others out there um, that we talked we heard about earlier. This is sort of what it looks like. It's a multi-step process. Um, you go through multiple steps, and basically what you're using is air or another gas. Some people have, have used ozone. Um, I think some people are using nitrogen, but you can use different gases, and you're bubbling the gas up through the liquid. Um, PFAS as a compound, as a class of compounds, are basically surfactants, so they like to foam. Uh, those of you that operate leachate treatment plants know that leachate likes to foam by itself. You know, it's a real pain in the butt. So you've got, you know, natural foaming in leachate, whether it's from PFAS or proteins that might be in, in the leachate, but it likes to foam. So you, you force it to foam with aeration. Um, you, you regulate the amount of air, at the bubble size. There's a lot of factors that go into optimizing the process. And you create this foam, comes up to the top of, of the unit, and overflows typically by gravity uh, or by, by suction, by pulling a slight vacuum on it. Uh, that, that foam then goes through further steps and gets more and more concentrated. There's a, land, there's a couple of landfills actually in Sweden that are using a process, and they're, they're getting about a concentration factor of 30,000 to 1. So they're basically getting down to non-detect limits in their, in their leachate. And also, well, actually, I have the data, I think. Sorry. Yeah, here we go. So they're getting down to close to non-detect limits in, in a lot of cases. This is old data and a 30,000 to 1 concentration factor. So in, think about it. You're treating 30,000 gallons a day, and you end up with one gallon of of concentrate at the end of the day. That's pretty easy to manage. You know, you pour some concrete in it and solidify it and throw it out in the landfill and, you know, you don't have to worry about it. You collect it for a year and then haul it to a deep well and it goes away. So uh, it, it, it's got some real advantages, I think, from a, um, a management standpoint. Um, since, since this data was um, presented and developed, there's been advancements in the technology in terms of how they recycle, the amount of air they're using, just a lot of different things that, that's gone into develop, further developing the technologies. Uh, one thing that the initial results show is really good removal of the longer chain compounds, the C6s up to C8s, um, but the short chain compounds were not effectively removed. They like to, they're, they're more soluble in the water, they don't like to come out. So uh, there's been a lot of work done by different, different folks in terms of amendments to add into the, uh, into the stream to help remove uh, short-chain compounds and so forth. So each vendor's got their own proprietary, you know, magic chemicals that they can add. These are off-the-shelf chemicals in general, I believe. But uh, to help advance the uh, removal, so uh, a lot of good stuff coming out of the foam frack world. Again, only if you're targeting PFAS. Uh, what do you do with the residuals? You know, I mentioned you could solidify it. Um, there's a vendor out there that's been doing a lot of work with uh, uh, solidifying concentrates, whether it's RO concentrate or other types, including foam frack concentrate or 
it could be media as well. And it's basically just blending um, the, the residuals with concrete, cement kiln dust, along with other amendments, other binders to hold the material together. And the work they've done is shown they get about 95 to 98% uh, capture or sequestration using the SPLP test. So pretty, pre, you know, pretty good, you know, locks out the vast, vast majority of the PFAS in this material. Um, they claim they can use this as uh, alternative daily cover. I think you'd have to get approval from the regulatory agency in that case. The advantage, of course, is it's a very thin layer. You're not importing dirt. You're not adding six inches of cover and using up that airspace. So it could be really attractive. Um, all that said, it's not, it, this isn't necessarily cheap. You know, so you have to weigh that. Uh, there's counterbalance to everything. Uh, and then there's ZLD evaporation. You know, you're taking the leachate, you're warming it to the point where you're evaporating the liquids. Um, the, the vapor comes off, uh, goes to the atmosphere, the residuals stay behind. I think there's still ongoing work probably that's needed to really understand using um, the right methodologies, which are still developing, to what extent, if any, uh, PFAS compounds are coming off in the vapor. I, I know some folks have been working on that. Um, there, there really hasn't been any data that I've, I've, been, I, I've seen, and I think the methodologies are still evolving on stack testing and so forth. I don't think EPA has even figured out how to, how to monitor this correctly. So I think that's a big ongoing question with this technology. I really like the technology, um, but, but that's, that's a question that's got to be answered because the regulators are asking the same question. How much goes up the stack? And you could argue, well, the long chain stuff is going to stay behind with the liquid, but the short chain stuff may, may come up more, more efficiently. People are only, only looking largely at long chains right now. So what happens when short chains uh, become an issue, you know, is that going to be a problem? So I think there's some work that needs to be done there. Uh, we sort of saw this earlier. It's uh, kind of the same slide, just a little bit different format. I apologize. Um, destructive treatment technologies, Brian will be talking more about this. This is sort of a list of the technologies that, that might be out there right now and, and some of the challenges with each one and where they are in the continuum. Uh, incineration and paralysis, um, that kind of thing, are, are reasonably well developed. Uh, you go down the list and they're less and less developed. Um, this is the part people get really interested in is uh, what do the costs look like? And this is an example for, for a single site. We looked at a bunch of different options. Uh, some are, are direct discharge to surface water. Others are pretreatment before going to a POTW. And then some are ZLDs or liquid discharge. And we looked at what the, the cost would look like. Most of these are 50,000 gallons per day. There's a couple other outliers there. And you can see what the CapEx looks like. You know, we're looking at, you know, best case foam frac might be for a, a totally installed cost, you know, system in the, in the ground, operating, engineering, permitting the whole, whole nine yards, uh, building three and a half million. And you could go up to 13, 14 million really easily 
with some of these options. You see a 19 million in there, but that's for 100,000 gallons per day. So pretty significant costs. And then we look at the OPEX, and when you boil that down to dollars per gallon, which is how the industry thinks about it, we're looking at a low of, say, four cents a gallon for foam frack. That, that includes res residuals management. And you'll see there's an error in this. I apologize. On foam frack, the residuals management, you wouldn't evaporate it and then offsite deep well because the small volume. That really should be solidification. Um, but we're looking at four cents a gallon for foam frack, and you could be going up to 50 cents a gallon for more advanced technologies. And a lot of it is driven by residuals management, which, okay, so um, what's the OPEX look like? And on the left there, my eyes aren't that good. Uh, so that's a standalone RO system coupled with evaporation. And in this case, there was enough um, excess gas at the site to operate the evaporator to manage the RO concentrate because it was only about 12,000 gallons a day, actually less than that, maybe 5,000 gallons a day or less of concentrate way to deal with. So it was a small evaporator and we had enough gas to operate it so we didn't need supplemental fuel. And you end up with a pretty low OPEX there. It's what, about five cents a gallon roughly. And then we look at another scenario where we have a membrane bioreactor followed by GAC and IX, the scenario we were talking about before. And you see this huge jump in disposal costs because of dealing with the residual GAC and IX resin. So there's a huge impact there. And then lastly, we looked at um, evaporation of all the leachate. You know, just no other pretreatment, just evaporate the full, full load. And this is for 50,000 gallons a day. The problem was we didn't have enough gas on site to be able to evaporate that full volume, so we had to supplement it with propane, and then the costs just get out of control for the fuel costs. That's the brown level you see there. So it, it just became unworkable. But, so I think the point of the slide is, you know, residuals management is a big deal. You know, you see that blue on, on the far right, even for evaporation, that was a big, um, big piece of, uh, of the cost. And then the fuel costs. So every site's different. Um, Stephanie, I think, talked about this a little bit. This is just a survey that was done by UREF and SWANA on disposal costs for leachate these days. And, you know, Sort of the guideline, I think, is about five cents, four or five cents a gallon right now is a good place to be for leachate uh, disposal. Um, certainly it gets higher if you add into trucking, um, particularly now with you know, diesel fuel costs and so forth. Uh, so that's sort of the baseline we're working off of. And then what happens after you add PFAS treatment? So what I tried to do here is just look at, okay, what are the treatment costs? Uh, for different scenarios with and without PFAS uh, treatment. And the bottom line is, you know, we're looking at about a four, four cent to six, 60 cent increase in um, uh, cost for PFAS treatment, depending on which technology and all the different variables for each site. Uh, what that works out to, about three to 14 percent increase in tipping fees if you uh, align that with 
national, these are all based on national numbers, so your, your mileage will vary, your costs will vary. But uh, obviously, uh, an increase of 3 to 14% is possible just to have to deal with PFAS, so not insignificant. Yeah. Had enough, huh? Okay. Um, real quick, uh, we heard about biosolids earlier, and um, some of the, you know, this was a study done by CDM, and you can see uh, disposal costs are triple or, or more if they have to go to landfills. And the other implications, we sort of heard about landfill stability, uh, what, are, what is the ca capacity of the landfill, how is it impacted odors, uh, there's going to be an increase in leachate volume because of liquids associated with the biosolids. Concentrations in the uh, leachate are going to get higher for things like uh, um, ammonia. And what are the farmers going to use for fertilizer? So now they're going to have to go out and find another source of fertilizer. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of bad things associated with that. I think it's a short-term scenario. So what are the cost implications? Um, going right down to the bottom there, Steve, stop kicking me. Um, we could be three to 11 or $12 billion industry impact if everybody had to put in PFAS uh, treatment. OPEX could be up to half a billion dollars a year industry-wide. Uh, so 10-year cost, four to $19 billion. So we're talking big numbers that begin with a B, not an M. So final thoughts. Um, I think PFAS will remain at the forefront of the regulators' minds and the public. I think the horse is out of the barn. The regulators pick very, very conservative uh, limits for PFAS based on very limited science. I think it's reaction, these are my opinions, reaction to uh, Flint, and nobody wants to get caught being on the wrong side of that. So I think it's going to be really, really hard for regulators to roll back the limits that are on the books right now. Uh, despite what the science says, because the public, it's very emotional for the public. They just don't, they've heard enough about PFAS, they don't want it. They want their water protected, whatever, so I think it's going to be really tough to roll that back. To me, I view landfills as receivers of PFAS, not generators. Uh, they're doing a, um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, they're, they're a great place for PFAS to land. All that said, um, you know, we're only removing a fraction of the PFAS that's going to POTWs if we control it. Uh, but, it but still, a little bit goes a long way in breaking the, C, uh, the PFAS cycle. Um, at the end of the day, if society wants PFAS controlled, uh, there, there's a cost for doing that. And, you know, landfill's a great place to do it. Again, these are just my opinions. Uh, great place to do it. It can be done. It can be regulated but there's going to be an impact to, to the public, depending on what the industry does, obviously. I don't think anybody would do it for free. So, thank you. All right, thanks, Kevin. So, um, so Kevin said he was going to bring us down into the weeds. I'm going to wade into those weeds, find you. We'll start in the weeds, and I'm going to pull you back out of the weeds. We're going to end with a bit more of a, a little bit of a philosophical perspective on exposure to PFAS. And we're going to put that all in context of where waste management fits in. 
So um, since Kevin did such a great job in explaining the different technologies for leachate treatment, I wanted to explain kind of our perspective on research direction. I know the earlier session mentioned data gaps, research gaps, and so forth. And so when we think about research, we tend to look at a landfill kind of really in the form of a mass balance. So you've got PFAS coming in and the incoming waste. Um, you've got the PFAS and the leachate going out. That's pretty much what the primary focus of the discussion has been. Uh, but then you also have potential PFAS exiting in the form of emissions. This could also be evaporation from leachate evaporation technologies too, so you could take that word fugitive off in that case. Um, or you've got potential PFAS leaving the, uh, the gas collection control system from the, from the stack or from the flare. Then you've got pot the potential for PFAS to leave through the liner system at the bottom of the landfill. And then, as Kevin mentioned a few times, there's the concept of sequestration of PFAS in the landfill. So when we think about this from a research or a data gap standpoint, we're looking at all of these sort of entry and exit points or these sort of res reservoir points and, and asking the question, what's happening along the way as this PFAS is sort of dynamically moving into the landfill and conceivably moving out of the landfill or staying in the landfill? And as uh, it's been discussed, there's no shortage of questions <laughs> that we want answers to in that respect. So starting in the weeds, I will start with, with PFAS and leachate, but we're going to talk about PFAS and gas. And, and through the liner system and so forth, and then look about implications on exposure. So some of this I'll, I'll maybe, maybe sound repetitive, but there will be a little bit of a different bent on it. Um, so as um, Kevin mentioned, there are a variety of ways to manage PFAS as I think about it uh, kind of from a lay perspective. We're either going to uh, we're going to sieve it out, we're going to have it stick to something and then pull that out, or we're going to try to completely destroy it or partially destroy it. Um, and those technologies that Kevin mentioned are kind of embodied in these three primary mechanisms for the most part. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the, this forever chemical, the PFAS, is really why, why is this different than anything else that, that we have to deal with in leachate? And a lot of, a lot of this has to do with the energy um, that it takes to break the bond. And so you may be the picture to put in your head, if you have two kitchen magnets and you put them together and you pull those apart, that's pretty easy, right? But imagine if you had two industrial grade magnets and you put, put them together, it would probably take two or three people to actually pull it apart. And that's the illustration here is that the bond energy between carbon and fluorine is very strong compared to the other bonds. So when you're talking about treating BOD or, or other kinds of uh, organics in leachate, um, that's a much easier proposition than having to deal with, with, with breaking apart the carbon-fluorine bond, which is why a lot of the current on-the-shelf technologies deal with really filtering out, it out and then figuring out what to deal with that more concentrated form later. So as Kevin mentioned, there are a number of technologies in the research phase. We'll talk a little bit about electrical plasma discharge, hydrothermal processes, and then advanced combined processes, which really kind of are additive or, or in combination, they, they add a few of these different technologies together. Um, so the first one we'll talk about is really in terms of the, uh, there we go. This is an example of plasma discharge. Thanks, Kevin, for the graphic on this one. This is pretty cool. I, I looked at that and I'm like, oh, this is, this is neat. Um, but really, if you think about, um, if you've ever bought those plasma balls at like a gift shop or something like that, in essence, this is what's, what's, what's basically happening. You're, you're, applying, you're, you're applying a plasma to the liquid. It's creating free radicals, which in essence help break apart the PFAS molecule. Um, so this is something that is in a research phase. We funded a project to 
Clarkson University that's in process, and they're using this technique to, to determine what kind of, of destruction can we get. And this shows, if you, you might not be able to see from the glare, but this basically shows uh, the PFAS, long-chain PFAS was 100% destroyed in less than 30 minutes, and again, with the glare, you may not be able to see it, but from zero minutes to 90 minutes, there actually is a color change in the leachate there, if you can't quite see it. Um, some of the short-chain short PFAS, it took a little bit longer, but nonetheless, they were able to still get 100% destruction, but in a longer time frame and with the addition of a catalyst. Um, and then some of the work that Brown and Caldwell has done also found similar removals for PFOA, PFOS, and PFH. Uh, XS. So, so we're seeing congruence in some of the data that this is an effective strategy for, for looking at PFAS destruction. Um, this project is, is ongoing. We're about halfway through this one, so we expect to see some final results coming up a, a little bit further in, down the year. On the hydrothermal processes, this basically involves using hot water and steam. So hydrothermal or um, supercritical water oxidation, basically what we're looking at here are these two technologies are, if, if you look at this, they're kind of up in the supercritical water phase or at much higher in pressure temperatures. And in, when that happens, there's a little bit of magic, <laughs> that, that, not magic, but um, it, there's a little bit that happens that helps break apart these PFAS molecules. But, but up in that area is where the magic happens in terms of PFAS treatment for these two particular technologies. And there's been some work done, not only, not only some work that's been propagated by EREF, but also other work that's been done out there. Some of these advanced and combined processes involve photoactivated reductive defluorination. Um, we've got electrochemical oxidative filtration, so combining filtration with the applying of a, of, a, um, of a voltage and basically using both of these strategies to be able to pull PFAS out. Um, utilizing UV coupled with boron nitride as a catalyst is another way that this is done. So these are just some examples of some of the work that's being done on the research front to try to remove PFAS. Uh, in, from leachate. So let's move on to PFAS transport through liners. This was a key point that, that came out is, well, okay, what, what happens if we've got to deal with PFAS and leachate? Uh, is this going to go through the liner system? And there was, a, there was a, a bit of talk around this as a potential concern. So EREF initiated a project with the University of Wisconsin-Madison to explore whether this is a, a real concern or not. And so what they are looking at here is the hydraulic conductivity from compacted clay liners and geomembrane clay liners and seeing if PFAS moves through this. So they're, they're set up here. If you look on the left, you've kind of got your PFAS molecule above the liner system. And then the, the perception is that at some point you're going to see this PFAS molecule drop out. And so, so Wisconsin explored a number of different strategies. Let's, let's assume that the liner is whole. Then we really have more of a diffusion process. Let's assume that there may be a, a breach in the liner, a small pinhole or something like that. We've got some advection. And then let's look at a combination of both. And what do we see? And so in that respect, what they found is that the PFAS flux at the bottom was really not there. There was, there was not a lot of PFAS moving through the system. It's very low at this point in time based on what they found. Again, these results are still preliminary, but it really kind of squashes the idea that you've got massive amounts of PFAS moving through the liner, which matches what we've seen with movement of other contaminants through the liner system is that it's, it's very minimal in that respect. So this matches what we already know about other contaminants. It just validates that, that PFAS is not behaving markedly different than some of the other contaminants that we see that interact with the liner system. From a, a gas standpoint, there are a number of efforts going on. One is just determining what kind of PFAS do we see 
in landfill gas and is, is this a problem? So this is a, a project by NC State University that EREF has provided partial funding on that evaluates just the, the massive PFAS that's present in landfill gas. Uh, and then there's a, a study looking at the PFAS um, destruction in the landfill gas flaring system. So that's sort of part two of this. So first is what kind of PFAS do we see in the landfill gas? And secondly is, okay, now that it's going through the, the flare system, do we see partial or full destruction through the flaring system? So what the uh, researchers found here is that really the PFAS in landfill gas is dominated by fluorotelomer alcohols, um, which makes sense. I mean, you need this, these compounds typically to be volatile, be able to, to move in a gas phase. But what they found, and, and these are sort of the yellowish-orange bars that are the high, high ones that are spiking up here under these different locations across the landfill, these are the 6-2 the uh, fluorotelomer alcohols, and these, this is a specific compound that's used in gre grease-proofing food packaging, such as pizza boxes and wrappers. So we're getting conformance with what we see in the landfill gas, with what we're seeing ma being made in terms of packing and so forth, and of course now we're seeing it in landfills because that's where these materials tend to go. Some other work that's been going on is looking at, at where, where we see PFAS in the landfill gas. So you may see uh, emit some of the fugitive emissions, that's why I had this particular, that particular uh, arrow up there in terms of the mass balance. But the question is, okay, we've got fugitive emissions normally that would come through the cover soil. Do we see PFAS kind of riding along with those emissions and does the soil attenuate that in any form or fashion? And then if it gets in the collection system, what kind of destruction efficiency do we see with PFAS? So these are ongoing research projects that uh, we don't have final data yet, but certainly what they found is that the landfill gas concentrations that are in the piping system, in the collection system, tend to be orders of magnitude greater than the ambient air around landfill. So that's, that shouldn't be that surprising, but again, it's just confirming that we see, we see PFAS concentrations in the landfill gas collection system. The concentrations in the ambient air are much, much lower, um, but how do we understand what happens with that interaction Action between ambient air concentrations and what we see in the landfill gas collection system. So that's an ongoing project. Hopefully we'll have final results this time next year to be able to share what's going on. So from a PFAS sequestration standpoint, there are really sort of two perspectives here. One relates to the idea of do we see landfills as a, as a facility that can sequester PFAS? And I think the answer is generally yes. This is from a study that Sanborn Head did. Um, in partnership with, I, I believe it was the, um, the Vermont DEQ. Um, but really what this is, is is the ratio of PFAS in and the ratio of PFAS out, and that ratio is going up. So the analogy I would use here, if you, if you go back to your hotel room tonight, you just for kicks and gills want to try this, um, turn on the water in your bathtub, throw a washcloth over the, over the drain, and you'll see water start to back up in the bathtub. That's really what happens here. That's the concept, is that we're going to be putting more PFAS in that's coming out, so it becomes basically this reservoir for PFAS. Um, that makes sense, right? I mean, because by the time we're done with the lifetime of a landfill, it's a lot higher in elevation. So landfills sequester all kinds of things, carbon, mass of, of waste, um, metals, all kinds of things are sequestered. So it shouldn't be surprising to see that, yes, we probably do see some sequestration of PFAS. What we don't know is how much is sequestered. Um, so, you know, what we need to understand better is over a longer time frame, what is that ratio look like? This is a very short-term kind of study, um, but as we see things happening over a longer time frame, do we see a significant portion of PFAS being sequestered versus, versus not? Um, the other side of this as, as a PFAS reservoir is this concept of, okay, we're treating leachate, 
we, we have this, this concentrated form of leachate, whether it's from RO or some other technology. Now we've got this, this solidification strategy that Kevin mentioned, which again mixes Portland cement with, with ash and other kinds of materials to basically cement in the, uh, the PFAS and then you put it back in the landfill is the concept. Um, you know, some of the early demonstrations, as Kevin alluded to, are, have been shown to be effective. Some of the questions that remain are, okay, well, what happens over 10 years, over a decade? Do we see this happen, especially if it's being used as a daily cover where it can be more friable rather than more monolithic? Um, do, we, do we see the same sequestration at the same levels over the long time frame? So these are over a longer time frame. So these are some of the questions that we're, we're looking at addressing from a research standpoint that still need to get more data around that. So um, now let me move on to the exposure piece of this because you know, the, when you think about a landfill, I think there have been sort of two perspectives as if, if you have the landfill as a PFAS reservoir, so therefore it's, that's a good thing. We want to keep the PFAS in that landfill. Of course, if we're putting PFAS in and using it as a reservoir for, P, for PFAS, then we also need to manage those emissions uh, appropriately. Or you've also got landfills as a potential exposure pathway for PFAS. And so I wanted to bring that in because I think there is that perspective that, oh my gosh, we've got PFAS in a landfill and everybody's going to die. Uh, but in reality, you know, when we think about exposure pathways, I think it's important to put that in context. So this is a graphic from a study that was done by uh, Harvard University a few years ago that really illustrates how we as humans get exposed to PFAS. And so you've got the, the manufacturer of the PFAS, they make it in all the things that we know and love, like cheese that doesn't stick on a uh, pizza box, our Gore-Tex coats, and, and all of the uh, anti-stick sprays and so forth. We get exposed that way, but then also these products are thrown away, so they end up in the waste infrastructure, and then of course we also excrete that out in our, in our bodily fluids, and then you end up with some environmental exposure. And then you've got the more chronic situations of the firefighting foams and so forth. And so this really just kind of shows the exposure dynamic. Um, and what they found in some of this, this work is that really the primary exposure that we get on a daily basis, and again, we're not talking, I think Steve, you mentioned this before, about people who live next to facilities that manufacture large volumes of PFAS, or if you just happen to be standing there when they were putting out a fire and you got doused with anti-firefighting foam, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about daily exposure to PFAS. And what this study found is that the predominant exposure to humans is basically ingestion. So that's really where we're getting most of this uh, from an exposure standpoint. So when we think about that, and this is just an example of a few of the PFAS compounds, and some of them, yes, you do get a lot more through the tap water, but when you aggregate that over time, the, the significant majority of it seems to be coming from our diet, basically what we're ingesting. So the question is, if most exposure is from what we eat, what potential exposure then comes from landfills, okay? I'm not, I've not seen anybody um, drinking leachate or, or you know, diving through a landfill and, and trying to eat what's left there. So the question is, all right, how are we actually going to get exposed to PFAS from a landfill if that's the case? And so there are a number of possibilities. We think back to this graphic I showed at the beginning. So we've got the potential for emissions coming out of that if we happen to be near a landfill or maybe downwind, depending on how far. We don't know. It's another data gap. But we could potentially be breathing this in. So that would be an inhalation potential exposure. Um, we've got if if by chance there was a significant breach um, and PFAS got into the groundwater and there happened to be a drinking water well nearby, it is conceivable, it's plausible, I'm not saying it's likely, but that one could get that through drinking groundwater if you, if you have a well. 
And then you've got leachate, which, again, no one's drinking the leachate, but the, the implication is, is that leachate's coming out of a landfill, and at some point, we could get exposed to that leachate downstream or, or what have you by drinking it or washing our hands in that water or swimming in the river that the discharge is happening in. So let's look at that in a bit more detail here. When we think about exposure pathways, so we've got the landfill liner that's breaching PFAS leach laden leachate into the groundwater and then that goes to a drinking water well. The current research suggests that's really unlikely. It's going to be extremely unlikely except perhaps in very extenuating circumstances. Um, but the research isn't all in, so you know that's the caveat: is that more research is needed in that in that particular case. The other one is is landfill gas going into the ambient air, and then we're going to breathe that. Now, that's much more realistic if you're in closer proximity to a landfill or, or downwind. That's much more of a potential exposure. But air dispersion seems to significantly dilute concentrations as distance from landfill increases. With the NC State study, that was one of the findings, is that ambient air concentrations are magnitudes of order lower than what we see in the landfill gas. So that suggests that, as, as Kevin said earlier, the, the solution is dilution, and that goes for PFAS in air as well as in leachate. So, and then in the collected landfill gas, the current research suggests that, that there could be 100% PFAS destruction if you're at temperatures of 500 to 1,000 degrees Celsius, um, with short-chain PFAS requiring higher temperatures. Now, that's some basic lab research that was done just this year um, that has not been tested on landfill gas. So that's, that's another uh, element that NC State is working on in their, in their work. So that's, uh, that's another piece of the puzzle that we'll be able to know a bit more about later in the year. And then from a leachate standpoint, direct exposure is unlikely outside of a landfill or wastewater treatment personnel that are working at these particular facilities. The pathway for PFAS and leachate to enter the body of the average person involves degrees of separation. So let me share a little bit what I mean by that. So let's say you've got this situation, you've got PFAS and leachate, it's leaving the landfill and it goes to either an on-site treatment facility or a POTW. So if that's the case, and we think about what is the PFAS contribution of landfill in landfill leachate to relative domestic wastewater. Just pulling some broad numbers, but the domestic wastewater volume is 12.4 trillion gallons per year from the, based on the EPA. And we've got average concentrations of two, PFOS and PFOA, in that wastewater volume. Now, we've got the leachate generation as 16.5 billion. So you've got 12.4 trillion of domestic wastewater, 16.5 billion of leachate. All right, and that concentration, we also know a range of concentrations. So if we think about what the concentration is here, and I know that's cut off a little bit, but the percent of, of, um, the, percent of the wastewater that's leachate and the percent of PF, uh, PFAS that's in that leachate really is 0.4 to 0.07 percent on a national scale. Now we do know that varies. So if you, these are some state-based studies and this from that USGS study that was referenced earlier. We do know that on average the concentrations are higher and as was mentioned earlier, the bigger the domestic uh, tre treatment plant that you can send this to, the better because you're getting that dilution effect. But what that would suggest though, if the, putting these numbers together, that if there are situations and the average in North Carolina is say 0.6 to 0.10%, those numbers do are, are fairly close in proximity, but that would suggest that there are a lot of facilities that have very little PFAS that would be going through that as well. So leachate is a very insignificant contributor in that respect. But again, there's a lot more data that needs to be collected here to fully address this and fully really get a sense for, for what the understanding is. So now let's go back to this then. Given that uh, what we've illustrated here is that 
the PFAS contribution from leachate going to wastewater treatment plants seems to be quite low, but it is variable. It's going to change depending on where you're at and what size the facility is. But now, going back to this sort of perspective of exposure, so here we are again. We're back here at this place where leachate has gone through the POTW. Let's keep following that forward. So it leaves the POTW. It's typically going to be released into some body of water, a, typically a river, a stream, perhaps a lake. Further downstream, there's going to be a, a town or a facility that's going to pull that up into the drinking water treatment system, and then ultimately it's going to end up at our tap. So I want you to think about that for a minute because by the time it leaves the landfill to the time it actually gets back to our tap, not only do we have significant dilution happening, but that's one, two, three degrees at least of separation before that molecule of PFAS that left the leach that was in the leachate from that landfill could conceivably, theoretically, make its way back into a tap. So from an exposure standpoint, I think what this illustrates is that the degrees of separation are pretty important if we're thinking about this real, realistically from the average exposure that we might see or the exposure we might see to the average person that's in society. And there was a recent study on this that was published in Chemosphere that really asked the question, what are the effects of PFAS exposure at environmentally relevant con concentrations? And it's funny because Steve said this earlier, is this much ado about nothing? We did not even talk about that. But that was the title of this last slide here to really just note. Uh, what are the findings that these researchers came up with? And these are not researchers that EREF funded. This is just part of our tracking the research that's being done out there. But what, they're, what, what they found thus far is that the health impacts um, are cl they're clearly demonstrated in areas where there are high concentrations of PFAS at significant exposure levels. So yes, if you're living next to a place uh, that, that makes PFAS and they're not handling and managing that well, it, then that's very different. And those health effects and those impacts have been very clearly demonstrated. But what about the rest of us that maybe aren't living next to these types of facilities and we're standing here today perhaps breathing in PFAS from carpet or I just had a hamburger for lunch, whatever, I ate, whatever PFAS I ate my hamburger, that's considered an environmentally relevant concentration. So what's the effect there? And what, what this research suggests is that the toxicity, the toxicity occurs at higher concentrations than PFAS occur in the environment. What that means is that we're, the, real, the real danger for us receiving toxic levels of PFAS seems to be rather low. So the health impacts due to long-term exposure at environmentally relevant concentrations really hasn't been demonstrated, but this research suggests that perhaps this isn't a significant health concern, at least for the vast majority of us. Does that mean we shouldn't be treating it leachate? Of course not. I mean, especially if, leach if landfills are going to be the repository and help be part of the solution, then the treatment of, of, of leachate, the treatment of PFAS and leachate and, and looking at it in gas, I mean, that, those are all still very relevant questions, but I think it's just important to put this in context as we look about what the road ahead holds for us in terms of managing PFAS and how this industry really fits in. So with that, thank you for your time.